You've been fired? Oh, yeah. For performance? Yes. Yes, huh. I have. Wow. If you have anybody who gets to this podcast who's a C-level and hasn't been mm -hmm. fired at some point in time in their career, they're lying to you. Or they haven't been in a situation that represented enough risk or enough focus on performance by the company. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Now let's get to the episode. Scott, welcome to the show. Jubin, it's great to be here. I'm a long-time fan and listener to your podcast, and I can't believe I'm actually on the other end of one today. Oh, man, you're just flattering me because now you're part of the portfolio and you have to say that stuff. <laughs> well, you're safe. I'm not going to ask for an order at the end of this. Okay. <laughs> well, I can't wait to do it. I suppose, as you know, start all of these off the same way. I'm going to read your background back to you. I'll butcher things. Once I do, you let me know what I butchered. Go ahead and correct me. No hard feelings. And we'll use that as the launching pad to kick this thing off. Cool. Are you using the background that my mom sent you or the one on LinkedIn? <laughs> I got the one on LinkedIn. And then the Zoom background that we have right now is your Judge Judy office. So I think I'm pretty squared away on all backgrounds, both visual and text driven. This is starting already to sound like a Joe Rogan podcast. I like it. <laughs> all right. You went to... CSU Chico, in my notes, Kelsey, who works closely with me, she just put early 90s. I don't know. Maybe she was just... That's generous. She also went to Chico, so she's just being really nice. And then you went to Pepperdine for business school, and then you started your sales career at a company called Epiphany, and you did that for seven years, if I'm not mistaken. And you're, by the end of it, a sales director. That company ended up getting acquired a couple years after you left. Then you had your first run at SAP. It was quite an epic run from 2002 to 2013, first as the area sales director for four years, then as the VP of enterprise information management sales for a year for the Americas and the VP of analytics in the Americas. You did three years of that. Then the group VP of the West, these big companies all make these really complicated, unnecessarily fancy titles. You did a year as the group VP of the West, and then you were the COO and you did two years there at SAP. Then you were at Tableau. You were the SVP of the Americas there, working closely with one of my former guests, Kelly Wright, for three years. Then you decided you hadn't had enough of the pain, so you went back to SAP, and you spent one more year there from 2016 to 2017. Then you went to Alteryx. Alteryx, or I, I feel like I always mispronounce it. It's Alteryx. Alteryx, okay. And you were the president and CRO there, running all revenue activities. And you did four years of that from 2017 to 2021. Really great run. Congrats on that. And then along the way, you joined the board of Zero with an X, one of my all-time favorite companies and one of my all-time favorite guests, the CRO of Zero, Rachel Powell. She's incredible. And then now, as of February of 2021, which is six months ago, seven months ago, you joined as the CEO of Incorda. How'd I do? You got it. Yeah. And I think I left out the 10 years of being a pure sales rep before I even started at Epiphany. And I'm not too proud to state that I graduated from Chico State in 1985. That was a great time to be at Chico State. I think you should be proud. You've had a hell of a run. I have so many questions. I'm not even exactly sure where to start. So 
maybe I'll start off with what was your first ever job? Wow. My first ever job was as a ditch digger and it was the most impactful job I ever had. And so I was 15 years old. I was living in a really small town in the Bay Area called Petaluma and I wanted to get a car. And my mom said, go get a job and save some money. And I said, I can't find a job. She said, oh, I have a friend who's a plumber and he needs somebody to dig ditches for pools. And so I got up every morning one summer and drove to beautiful homes in Marin County and dug ditches all day. And I earned $1,000, which my mom matched. I bought a car and then I totaled it three weeks later. And it sat in front of my house until the next summer when I could get a job digging ditches again. And it helped me learn a work ethic. It helped me understand what I wanted to do and not do as a career in the future. And what I didn't want to do was dig ditches for a living. So that was my first job. I totaled my first car when I was 16. And it was my stepdad's old car. And I didn't have any money to buy a new car. And well, my parents certainly weren't going to get me another car. And so there was nothing more humbling and humiliating as begging for rides to school. Well, no, my parents said, we're not driving you to school. Like this was to get you to school. We got work to do. You can walk. It's a few miles. You can bike. You'd be sweaty by the time you show up, or you can start begging your friends for rides. And so after a while, I got really good at making sandwiches at Subway so that I could make a few bucks and get myself to school. All right, I think the obvious question that I have is that you were at SAP for a really good run. You're the COO of SAP, it's a big job. And then you had a great run at Tableau. That was the heyday of Tableau. Why'd you go back to SAP? Why'd you choose there? Yeah, so let me cycle back a little bit. So I joined a company called Business Objects when they were about a $100 million company, French-based company, and really one of the pioneers of the data and analytics space. And I spent four years there. I got my first frontline sales leadership job there. We were bought by SAP. And then I did a bunch of different roles at SAP. And ultimately, the COO role was just of a division. So it was yep. of the database and technology division, which was primarily responsible for launching HANA. And I worked for a great leader named Steve Lucas. And Tableau, I was recruited away from SAP to join Tableau. I joined, my first official day was the day they went public. So my timing was great. And I moved from sunny Southern California to Seattle and spent three years there and had an amazing time with an incredible group of people. And I ended up leaving and I was looking for the next Tableau. I couldn't find it. I loved my time at SAP. Had a lot of great friends there. And one of my great friends was Jennifer Morgan, who was the CEO at SAP at the time. And she called me up and said, hey, why don't you come back and work for me? Actually, I think she was not the CEO yet, but she was the president. And so I loved working for her and went back to SAP. And then Alteryx called. And I saw Alteryx as an amazing opportunity. And I had known the founder of Alteryx, Dean Stoker, for 30 years, literally since my first job out of college. And I saw it as a great opportunity and just an amazing four years at Alteryx. So between me and the fence post, I understand that Alteryx was an exciting opportunity, but was SAP not what you thought it would be upon the return of the Jedi or had things changed or was it not the opportunity that you thought it was or was it really only just that Alteryx was such a compelling thing? No, it was still a great opportunity. I still had the itch to go play a more prominent role in a smaller company and to have a big remit and to have a bigger impact. 
from an economic perspective, a bigger in- mm-hmm. impact in driving and growing culture and helping people be successful. So it really had nothing to do with SAP. Okay, fair. The comment that you made around, hey, I'm looking for the next tableau, what was your decision-making criteria? Yeah, the first was a huge total addressable market, great leadership, a great product, great customers, significant opportunity, a comfort level with what I thought needed to be done, and expanded responsibilities. Altrix was really the first time I had had a chance to run full global operations and scale the global operations. And I had a long time relationship with Dean. And so who you work for when you get to my stage in my career is super, super important. And I thought there was a great opportunity from a selfish perspective to create some wealth for me and others. Yeah. And while you're at SAP, you met Kevin Kinnear, who's now the CRO of Clary, former guest Actually, part of the inspiration for me reaching out was Kevin called me and said, Jubin, I think you should have a few CEOs on who have been CROs because I want to learn. And one of the first calls that I made was to you. The Kevin thing, what was that? Yeah, so Kevin and I worked on the same team at SAP for about a year and a half or so. And if I remember correctly, he was one of the top salespeople globally. He handled all the biggest SAP accounts in the West. And we had an opportunity open up for a new VP of sales to run a team. And Kevin was absolutely natural. And that started off his career in leadership. And then several years later, after I had left, he and I had talked several times because he wanted to go do a CRO role and make that leap from a big stable company to a smaller company. And we were talking and he asked me about Clary and I said, wow, it looks interesting. Don't really know them, but yeah, you should take the leap. You're good enough. Go make it happen. And he took the job. And then you fast forward, maybe three years later, I'm new at Alteryx and Jay Doss from Sapphire was on the Alteryx board. And Sapphire is also an investor in Clary. And he grabbed me one day after a board meeting. He's like, hey, you got this problem around revenue forecasting and probability, and you've got to look at Clary. And I'm like, yeah, I know Kevin Canarium. You know, he's my pal. And I said, I'll get to him later because I just started at Alteryx. And Jay kind of grabbed me. He's like, no, you should call him now. And I'm like, I got it. And so we bought a bunch of Clary there, and it had a huge impact at Alteryx. And then the first technology I buy we made when we got to Incorda was Clary. So we go way back. Amazing. Kevin, he's putting commission checks in your pocket if you're listening. Unbelievable. Well, the funny part is just to make it even more of a small world story is the sales rep from Clary who sold to me at both companies was a fraternity brother of my son's. And Laker tickets have been promised on a number of occasions, but have yet to materialize on my desk. So I'm waiting, Chad Cotton. (laughs) Oh, man. You know, listening to you say this all, it's just a small world. What are the chances that Kelly Wright and Kevin Canerium and Rachel Powell and all of these people who have been guests and worked with you and worked for you, it's just an incredibly small valley. I had Mark Malloy on the show from BetterUp, and he was the CRO of Glint, and then Dan Shapiro, the CRO of LinkedIn, ended up acquiring Glint. And so these are all such good reminders for me 
to basically do the right thing all the time because you're going to overlap with so many people. And by the way, everyone's one call away in the Valley. And so anyway, just hearing you talk about this incredible lineage of overlap that I've found myself interwoven into, it is a good reminder how much your personal brand means in this business. Yeah, I'll tell you, it's very much a relationship business and you should always try and do two things, do right by people and perform. And if you can do those two things, opportunities will abound. I mean, I was referenced into Tableau by somebody I'd worked with at Business Objects. I was referenced into Alteryx through somebody that I'd worked with 30 years ago. So yeah, it's very true. So speaking of the network, you're known as a student of leadership. And by the way, I'm sure the comms team prepped you a bunch and I'm positive that we're going so far off the script that they're going to be mad at me. I can't be prepped. I'll deflect to Ted. So you're kind of known as a student of leadership, and you've been quite fortunate to have some pretty cool mentors. The list includes Bill McDermott, Christian Chabot, Tableau CEO, Bill McDermott. Everybody knows Bill McDermott. John Legary, CEO of T-Mobile. What are the consistent themes or threads that you see in all of them that you've taken into your own leadership style? Yeah, great question. And I never reported directly to Bill, but obviously I worked in his organization and I worked on Christian's team for three years at Tableau. And John Leisure, I've never met. And those of you who aren't familiar with the name, he was the longtime CEO of T-Mobile, but I know one of the board members pretty well. And all three of them have the same things in common really, really passionate about their vision and their mission. They love a good fight and they love being the underdog. They know how to communicate their passion and vision and mission in a very, very inspiring and motivational way. And I just think that that's incredibly powerful and incredibly important for any leader. And I think particularly for a CEO is when you boil it down, the CEO's job at the headline level is really two things. It's inspiring and motivating and then making decisions and creating a decision-making framework for the entire organization. And I just learned by interacting and working for and with Christian and Bill McDermott and his entire org, because there were many, many great leaders who came out of that org when I was there, like Doug Merritt and Sajay Poonan and Steve Lucas and Jen Morgan and so on and so forth. And just being a fan of John Leisure and what T-Mobile's done to shake up a really legacy-based industry. Did you always know you wanted to run a company? At what point did you feel like, you know what? I don't just want to own the number. I want to own the whole thing. When did that happen? I always knew that I love leading and I love being part of a team that was a winning team. I guess I never really thought that I could do it until some of the last couple of years at SAP. I didn't think I'd ever get the chance until maybe three or four years ago. And maybe if I can relate one really important conversation I had at SAP that changed my mindset. I was talking with the president of the Americas at this point in time, And we were talking about two different opportunities I had at SAP. And I was asking for his help and counsel. And I was saying, hey, this one job, the person I'd be working with is such a superstar. They're going to be CEO. And then the other one, if person A isn't the CEO, 
this person B will definitely be the CEO. And I think I should attach myself to the president stopped me midstream and he goes, dude, stop right there. He goes, bet on yourself. If you don't bet on yourself, then you're not going to be successful no matter who you work with. And at the end of the day, the job doesn't make you, you make the job. And it really enlightened me to believe in myself and to take risks. And from that point on, my career took on a totally different sort of trajectory, which landed me at this spot where I'm at today. How much revenue roughly was Alteryx doing when you started there? And how much were they doing when you left? We were doing about 80 million. And when I left four years later, we were around 500 million. And Tableau was about 100 million. And I think we were around 600 million three years later. Did you just need to see yourself do it to give yourself the confidence that like, I just keep getting thrown in the deep end and I continue to perform and yeah, maybe the deep end looks a little bit different on this side or that side, but the pool's still deep and I continue to be able to get to the shallow end or tread water or whatever it might be. Were there certain things that gave you the confidence besides just the people to continue to make these jumps and take these risks? Well, you should always take the next job that's scary. That you're afraid you won't be successful or you're afraid you'll be found out as an imposter, right? We all have this little imposter syndrome in the back of our minds, but I knew Alteryx very well. And so I had high confidence that I could be successful. And along the way, they invested a lot in my development. And I was an active board participant for the last two years. And there's no greater learning you can have than being in the boardroom with a fast growing company, particularly when you have people like Jay Doss from Sapphire and Jeff Horing from Insight, and they had a great board and I learned a ton. So I was ready and prepared. I've learned a lot over the last 30 years and I've been paying attention. That voice in your head, that imposter syndrome thing. I have that a lot. Even now I get really insecure thinking about, Hey, Jubin, you're in a job that generally people are at in the tail end of their career when they're ready to hang up their cleats. And let's assume that you want to go back into operating at some point. You're going to be dull. You're not going to have it anymore. I get nervous. What if I can't close a deal? Even when I advise our portfolio, I think, oh my God, I don't know if I could step in there and close that deal right now. And so sometimes I get really scared. Other times it really motivates me to go prove to myself that I can go do that. And that's when I get impatient. How do you manage that voice? I have a hard time with it. Yeah, great question. And I've experienced a lot of things in the last six months in my role at Encorta that I had never experienced before, like going out and raising money and managing product and engineering for the first time. And there is doubt, but when you get through that process or the events within the process, it's super energizing when you face your fear and you come through on the other side and you're able to appreciate the things you did well, the things you could have done better, and you're open to learning how you can be at your best the next time you encounter it. But yeah, I was nervous today and I'm sure when I'm done, I'll feel like, hey, I got through that and it was a lot of fun and I wasn't as bad as I thought I was going to be. We'll see. We're not done yet. Have you ever been nervous, had that voice in your head, had that imposter syndrome or insecurity, and it was validated? You've actually failed? I think of times where there's a searing example in my head where I was at Palo Alto Networks, our team committed a $5 million deal, and we've done this before, 
the SVP of the Americas called me on that last deal. It was nationwide. He said, you're not going to get this deal. I said, screw you. We're going to get it. I'm committing this deal. We're committing this deal. We ended up getting it. I felt like a million dollars, no chance. I was untouchable at that point. My team was untouchable. My reps couldn't be touched. Next time, same thing, bigger deal. Same exact SVP calls me again. Jubin, there's no way you're going to get this deal. Arrogant me tells my rep, I think we should commit this. What do you think? He said, yeah, I'm in. We got this. The deal slips. We missed the quarter. The company was counting on it. The CEO knew about the deal. And that voice in my head was validated. And I'm not trying to be dramatic. I I laid on the couch. I couldn't move. All of my fears of failure all manifested at one time. And I thought there was no way that could happen because I kept conquering that voice over and over again. And I'd have success bias looking back on that little thing saying, you know what? You keep winning. And I got so comfortable on the other side of winning. Looking back, the advice was always easy for me. Take the risk, bet on yourself, you keep winning. And then I had a moment of pause after that because it deeply hurt to my core. Even now, I get emotional thinking about that moment. Has that ever happened to you, something similar? I don't know, maybe not similar, but that feeling? All the time. (laughs) Failure is a part of success, and I've failed many times. I've been fired. I would assume the audience is primarily sales leaders and CROs. Every sales leader and every CRO gets fired at some point in time. You're like an NFL coach. You're only as good as your last season. So I've learned to embrace those moments of failure and to try and learn something from it and just move forward. If you dwell on it or you're not open to learning from it, then it just grows, right? That whole fear of failure, the imposter syndrome. But yeah, it's tough to be a perfect forecaster every time. It's tough to call a deal when you don't necessarily have control. And that's part of the job. You've been fired? Oh, yeah. For performance? Yes. Yes, I have. Wow. If you have anybody who gets to this podcast who's a C-level and hasn't been Mm -hmm. fired at some point in time in their career, they're lying to you. Or they haven't been in a situation that represented enough risk or enough focus on performance by the company. I couldn't agree more. This is a very crude analogy, but whenever someone says I've never been broken up with or I've never been dumped, I usually respond like you probably haven't pushed yourself enough. You probably haven't been vulnerable enough. You probably haven't been open enough. Kind of a weird analogy, but I have a very similar response, which is you're not out in front of your skis enough. You're not probably progressing as a person at the rate that you could be. Otherwise, you'd fail. And by the way, you'd fail forward. And that would accelerate the way that you progress. I couldn't agree more. All right. So I have more questions. But before I get into that stuff, let's frame up what Incorda is, the CEO gig that you just jumped into, KP Portfolio Company. We're pumped. It has raised, as of most recently, $192 million of funding. The most recent round, which you just did, was $120 million. Talk about a big TAM. This thing continues to grow. All of this is public information. 60% of new revenue growth in the last year has come from organic expansion with existing customers. That's another way of saying net retention is quite good. Big customers. When KP invested four years ago, there was less than 10 customers. I was reading the memo of Ted and the team in preparation for this trying to get in our brain when we did this deal four plus years ago when it was barely 
a company. I could do it, but maybe I'll let you. Could you give us the 30-second pitch? What is Incorda? Incorda is a data and analytics platform that allows organizations to deliver data to business users in a unified one-platform approach. The way that data has historically been delivered to business people has been a multi-vendor, multi-step process that's been in place for 25 years, highly relying on ETL, relying on data warehouses. And what Incorda does is we allow businesses to access all of their data in one system from capturing the data in various different data sources to building uh, schema, to generating queries, to doing visualization and providing capabilities for data science as well. And we have far more than 10 customers today. We have some of the most important and valuable brands in the world in high tech, in social media, in entertainment, in retail. And we're solving a, a really, really big problem in a massive space. You had your pick of the litter. What pumped you up when you saw this opportunity? Having sold in this space for 10 plus years, it was very consistent that organizations realized that there was a better way to get data from sources of record into the hands of business users so they could drive business performance. And so the, the vision of Encorda was validated based upon hundreds of sales calls I'd done in the last 10 years. So that really, really got me interested. And then talking to customers, particularly customers who had invested in some of the technologies I sold before. So understanding where Encorda fits into that landscape. But lastly, nobody says no to Osama, our founder, and nobody says no to Tetch Line. And so it just felt like a great opportunity and great culture and amazing investors and board. And we just have great people in the organization. One of the things that makes us really cool and unique is most of our development is done offshore in Egypt. And we have an amazing, incredible, passionate, dedicated team in Egypt, which has been super, super fun to work with. So yeah, so far, so good. I have very big expectations and it's really been fun. Well, dude, if this is your invite to me to take you to Cairo with you the next time you're out there, consider myself in. I have been before? No, no, I'm in. I am going in a few weeks for my first visit and I cannot wait. Oh, it's going to be great. Can I give you some inside baseball on Encorda and you? And I just want to share some funny stories and I want to maybe get your reaction to them. So my story with KP started with Encorda. And when I was looking at my next opportunity after Palo Alto Networks or after a certain role at Palo Alto Networks, I got to know some of the people at KP and they introduced me to Incorda. And ultimately, I was actually really excited about this company for a sales leadership role in this business. And Palo Alto got wind of it and basically made it impossible for me to leave, gave me the enterprise job that I really wanted to go build out the teams that I really wanted. And what ended up happening was KP and Ted started to get to know me through that Encorda type process. And that was the beginning of a two-year courtship and tango between me and Bucky and Ted and the Kleiner team to get me 
to come on board. So I owe a big debt of gratitude to Incorda originally for getting That's awesome. Me. That is, I what a great story. I didn't know that. Yeah, for giving me the collider. All right. The other thing is, so Ted, who's on your board, in some ways, he's the godfather of Kleiner, but in other ways, he's the godfather to me, where when I first started, he was very influential in bringing me on board. And you're right. It's very difficult to say no to Ted. I tried and it was hard. I couldn't do it. And so my first week, we made a pact that I would sit down with them every Monday morning. And I told them, I'm like, look, I am an idiot. I joined this place because I'm going to be the dumbest guy in the room for a very long time. And that's really where I like to be. And so I'm going to pick your brain. Basically, I'm going to do a podcast with you. 30 minutes, Monday morning, and he graciously said yes. And so we got to know each other very, very well at this point. And we talk about all of his portfolio. I ask him about all these things. And the process started where we were looking for the future CEO of Incorda. And I remember there was a bunch of candidates. And the first time he brought your name up, he said, I think you're going to like this guy. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I don't know. He's cut from the same cloth. I just think that, you know, he's got this revenue thing. This business has a great product. And I think we need to build out a great go-to-market organization. So I think we should have a business leader that leads this business. I was rooting from you from the sidelines. I wish I could say I got this done for you. I had zero influence on the process. But when it happened, I remember just being super fired up. And in one of the memos that in the first Kleiner update, the portfolio reviews that we do every quarter, Incorda came up and there's notes at each of them. And I was looking back through the notes in your first quarter at Incorda. And Ted's note was that it said, Scott's never been in a CEO role. So I'm spending my time with him as a sounding board as he gets settled. So what an incredibly long-winded and selfish way of me asking you, what were some of the questions? What were some of the things that were your sounding board to Ted? What were some of the thoughts that you had as you were transitioning to make sure that it was smooth for you? Let me tell a quick similar story, okay, about getting connected to Kleiner. So this was in the, the late 80s. I was working for a really small startup company that ended up failing. And I had three kids under the age of five, and we needed to buy a minivan really bad, and I didn't have a job. And I said, well, what kind of company would be the best company that I could make money and have a career? And I learned a little bit about venture capital. And I said, you know, I heard of this Kleiner Perkins. Why don't I just go to their website and let me see what companies are in their portfolio, see if any interests me, and then see if any of them have a job. And I did that. And that's how I got the job at Epiphany. Kleiner was an investor in Epiphany. And I've always held Kleiner in just such incredible esteem. And so the fact that I'm sitting down with Ted Schlein, who is interested in hiring me for one of the portfolio companies 20 years later. It's just surreal. So now I'll answer your question directly. I really needed Ted's help with understanding how to integrate myself into the company, whose three of their four founders are still heavily involved in the company and critical to the past, present, and future of the company. How to handle fundraising and handle a board and investors. Because when I joined, there was a lot of debate about, should we go out and fundraise right now or should we wait a while? And it then became, this market is really, really hot. And Scott, you have a reputation, go get some money. It wasn't quite 
that direct and crude. But so Ted was very, very helpful, as was the rest of the board, Rob at Sorensen and Kareem at Google Ventures. So and he is just that type that you can call him up and say, hey, I'm confused or I've got a problem. And his advice and counsel has been dead on. Oh, I mean, he's exhausted by me at this point. Are you kidding me? Is it two years later, 30 minutes every Monday? The poor guy is absolutely so sick of me. I want to pick apart a bunch of things that you just said. The first was that there was a CEO that was in this job. Osama, he's awesome. I know him. He's great. He put this business on his back for quite some time and built an incredible foundation. There is also a big ethos in Silicon Valley around founder-led companies. And what were some of the tricky things, choppy waters maybe, that you had to navigate if there were any of making that transition, and but also making sure that you want the co-founders around, to your point, they're really important for the long run. How do you balance that? Yeah, it has been fantastic so far. I think if anything, I've had to bring Osama back into the business more sometimes. He's been an incredibly willing partner for me and is always there to help and advise me. His primary role in the company right now is CTO. And so he's leading our medium-term and long-term R&D. I mean, he's a brilliant, brilliant technologist. And sometimes I've had to drag stuff out of him to help me or give me his perspective because I need it. And I don't have an ego. Osama doesn't have an ego. We're both, I think at our core, very, very humble. And that character trait has helped us. One challenge for the organization though, is when you have a new CEO, there's lots of change. You have a founder, former CEO, who is revered and has a huge following to sometimes know where the division of labor and division of responsibility lies and to manage and navigate change. But it's been fantastic. I need him more or at least as much as he needs me. And I think we all understand that. Raising money. I remember when Ted was like, it's up to Scott when he wants to raise money. And you ended up doing it sooner rather than later because you come in, hotshot Scott, hotshot company, big market, capitals everywhere. How did your first ever fundraise as CEO go? Wow. It was every range of emotion, Juven. There were some great life lessons that I passed on to my three kids who were all out of school and in business, two of them in technology. And yeah, it, it was really fun, right? It was problem solving. It was selling. It was messaging. It was, what did we learn from that call? What did we learn from this call? And I know there are some companies and some CEOs that they go out and VCs are giving them money or each call they make, there's an offer made. But it's not always the case, certainly. And it wasn't the case with our process either. And part of that is because we were trying to be really selective about the types of investors. We wanted investors that were prepared to be disruptors and long-term investors in Incorda because we're out to build a multi-billion dollar company that disrupts the space. And I got plenty of no's. They were usually timing's not right, or we have an investment in a similar company, or we want to see some of the changes you're going to put in place and see the impact. But ultimately, it was a raging success, and it was fun. When you build your priority matrix, 
what are the things that are in your quadrant of high impact, high priority? Like when you started, you're six months in, whatever, what are the top three things that you are always evaluating your calendar to make sure they're aligned to these priorities? I got some really good advice several times from other CEOs that I was networking with before and after I joined. And one of the most important things is to articulate a really clear vision and strategy for the company and then figure out very quickly who's on board and who's not on board. So that was job one. And the company needed that for sure. Number two is culture and people. And I know that everybody says that, but without that foundation in place, you can never realize the vision, mission, and promise of any endeavor. And then the third one, and this may be more specific to the Incorda situation, but I think it applies across tech, is that what my people want from me or what my team wants from me is for me to make their job easier. And so I'm constantly asking people, hey, is the job easier than it was last week, last month? What can I do to help you be more successful? That's what the 400 people who work at Encorda are expecting from me, that I make it easier for them and our customers to be successful. Are the things that kept you up as a CRO different than the things that keep you up now? Oh, yeah. Yeah, big time. (laughs) I spend a lot more time thinking about not the go-to-market expectation, but the product execution. And I'm not a technologist. That's not my sweet spot. I'm lucky in that I have an amazing team. So I have a lot of trust in our ability to deliver. The other part of it is, as a CRO, the people that are looking at you and watching your every move and interpreting every word you say are primarily the people on the sales team and the CEO and finance team. As a CEO, everybody is watching you. Everybody is interpreting every word you say. And for a company like Incorda that's very diverse, interpretation of what you're communicating can vary widely. And I'm really worried about how people are feeling. Are they happy? Do they have belief? Do they have trust? Are we all aligned toward what we're trying to do? So yeah, I I worry about that every night. Do you think that feeling that we were describing earlier of imposter syndrome, of insecurity, call it whatever you want, when you think about you driving product right now, do you feel that more acutely? I felt this before when I was driving revenue, and that's my sweet spot. The ball's right in the middle of the plate for me here. Do you feel that more now? In the first three months, yes, but not so much. I have extreme confidence in our team. I feel much more comfortable in managing and participating in the process. And the way I've thought about this is I've always been close to the customer and I've always been listening for what the customer wants and what they need. And in many ways, I've always been playing that back to product orgs anyway. And I think I'm actually good at that. And so in a way, I've always been involved in product management and product development. Now I'm more responsible for the outcomes but it's a team proposition and I'm really comfortable. And to be honest with you, surprisingly, it's probably the funnest part of my job (laughs) because back to some of our earlier conversation, it is stretching me. It is putting me 
over my skis a little bit and I like learning. I was having a conversation earlier with Mark Malloy, so it's fresh in my brain. He's an incredible leader and he's the president of field operation. And one of the things that he has done his entire career is career planning, where he puts an Excel spreadsheet in front of pretty much every person in the organization and says, this is your job today. What job do you want in the future? And they will mutually define the delta of where that person is and the things, responsibilities, traits, characteristics that they need to develop in order to most effectively get to that next job. If I was building your career plan, or maybe put differently, if you were building a career plan for someone making the jump from CRO to CEO, what are the things that come to your brain now, eight months into the job, that you think these are the things, the traits, the characteristics, the skills that you could begin to start developing now to prepare you to be in that CEO position? Having a career plan is probably the most important part of that. Understanding the gaps and finding people that can help you fill the gaps and invest in your career at the same pace and same level of commitment that you are. But at the end of the day, realizing that you own your career and you own your career development. I went through a period of time where I felt like that was the responsibility of my boss or my manager or HR. And finally, I realized after getting turned down for a VP role three different times, like, no, you own it. So I think you're getting out there and meeting people that have gone through the same sort of transition, understanding and appreciating what they learned along the way, what they did to prepare, having a really, really honest conversation with yourself. One of the best things I did when I was at Alteryx, they invested in 360s through Spencer Stewart. And I learned a ton about what I was good at, what I wasn't good at, what I needed to focus to be prepared to take on a CEO's role. So I'm being really self-reflective and really open to getting feedback and then taking that feedback and putting it into action. I think lastly, I don't think I changed the day I became a CEO. You have to be true to yourself. And what's got you to this point is going to serve you well in that next step. You're going to need to change and grow, but don't change who you are. People have responded to you and you've been successful based upon the way you've performed, conducted yourself, your core character. Don't lose that. I agree. I think I've cited this a few times on this show, but Dan Shapiro says that the number one skill of a leader, he says it's self-awareness. The reason he says that is because as you go higher up in your career, there's less oxygen the higher up in altitude you go, which means that there is less data and feedback flowing your way. Those 360s become less and less relevant as you continue to go up. And so I think about that now in your role as CEO. People respond to leaders that give trust and respect and show humility and empathy. And it's taken me a while to fully understand and appreciate that. And I think the primary way I got there is I thought about the people I've worked with and the leaders that I've really responded to. And they all had those four key traits as part of their leadership. Is there a pain in the ass working for you if you're in the sales team? I just think about this guy knows my business inside and out. If you're a product CEO, let's just say, Forecasting is probably not your expertise or understanding each deal. 
this is what you do. If you're a sales leader coming in, in some respect, they're under the gun because they know that there's nothing that's going to get by you. But on the other hand, you also can really empathize with their world. You ever think about that? I have felt one of the things I've needed to work on as a leader is being more of a pain in the ass, not less of a pain in the ass. <laughs> some people will say that maybe I'm not as tough as I should be, but I like to hire professionals and they know how to do their job. It is a lot different when you're the CEO than you're the CRO. I find myself giving much more advice than direction and input and certainly always willing to help. You can call some of the people who work for me and they might have a different opinion, but that's my <laughs> perspective anyway. I'll figure it out at the next sales kickoff for Recorda. One more, I'm not trying to gas myself up here, but right before the show we were talking and you said, Jubin, there's a couple of things that I make people listen to or read before they join the company. What are those? And again, I'm not going to plug myself totally here, but I do have a question or two. So go ahead. Yeah. So for any of the salespeople or sales engineers that are coming to work at Incorda, I gave them a little prep homework before they join. And the first was the podcast you did with the CRO of Snowflake, Chris Degren. Chris Degren, yep. I haven't met him, but I, hopefully you can connect us because I, I listen to it and it's incredibly inspiring. And we're further along than Snowflake was when Chris joined, but I can understand and appreciate a lot of the challenges that he articulated in the podcast. And so I, I wanted people who were coming here to recognize that it may seem very similar to Snowflake's early days. And it's going to be up to us to turn the future of Encorda into something very similar to Snowflake's present. The other was two books. First was Green Lights by McConaughey. And it's a great book around identifying challenges as opportunities and going through life with a smile and a passion. And then the other was Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. An amazing story of perseverance. And I consumed all three of those around the same time when I was joining Encorda because, yeah, I didn't know what laid ahead and I knew there were big, big challenges and I was super inspired by all three. So yeah. Uh, I appreciate that. And just to put a finer point on the Degnan thing, because I basically had nothing to do with it. It's impossible for me to screw up that story. But I think the reason that resonates so deeply with people is because you look at his resume, you look at his LinkedIn profile, you look at the success that he's had and you listen to that episode and it was freaking hard every step of the way. It was so hard. And he talks about how he's a CRO today after his like what, third CEO and he was employee seven, and he says he still feels like he's on a quarter-to-quarter -quarter contract every quarter. And I think that is a very healthy chip on your shoulder, and I think that's a good reminder for people. So that's why I brought it up. Cool, man. I will get you out of here somewhat on time, incredibly. I appreciate you. Scott, I end all these things the same way. What does the word grit mean to you? There's a great quote by Winston Churchill that my son used to use a lot when he was playing football. And he's like, hey, if you're going through hell, keep going. And I think that captures the essence of grit. For me, it's belief. You got to have belief every day that no matter what professionally or personally is thrown your way, that you're going to be okay. And that somehow you can manage through it and things will be brighter on the other side. So for me, it's belief. I assume you're hiring across the board. Are there any key hires that you have top of mind for you right now that you want to shout out? If not, what's the best way to just get a hold of you? Yeah, so 
One of the interesting things about coming to Incorda as a first-time CEO is I did not, and I still do not have a CFO. So the CFO is a very critical hire. Ted pings me once a month. Hey, where are we at? <laughs> and then, yeah, we're hiring engineers and product people, both in the U.S. and abroad, and obviously building out our go-to-market team, sales, marketing. And the best way to get a hold of me is just hit me up on LinkedIn, Scott Jones at Incorda. Scott, thank you, man. Appreciate it. Cuban, thanks for having me. I had a great time. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.